Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Uh, and for the rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 38. I can hear that I'm in these monitors, so definitely take me out of those. That'd be great. There you go. Um, <clears throat> Luke 3, 23 through 38. And uh, this one's going to be a fun one, maybe a little, uh, little difficult at times as we kind of walk through it as we are looking at the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so um, there's going to be 77-ish names uh, that I'm going to read through. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to read it together as a church body. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you guys do that. But uh, it would just sound like we're, we're doing tongues today if we um, kind of walked through that. But anyways... Um, if you're new here, you're like, where is this going? Uh, we'll see where it goes, okay? Gen- uh, Luke 3, 23 through 38. What I'm going to do is I am going to read through it, and I'm going to ask that you give me grace. And but, you know, just I went through and looked at the Greek. I listened to the sound of these names as well and their kind of original context and how they would uh, enunciate them. And uh, I'm from Tennessee, so um, you're going to get what you get, all right? So, starting in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Samayan, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nishon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of uh, Arphaxed, <laughs> the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. All right, there we go. 
we got through it, all right? And so that's what I'm going to preach on today, is what every single person means. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to... 77 points here as we look through this. Uh, but really, as we walk through the book of Luke, um, one of those questions, and a question that's often asked is, why, why include genealogies in Scripture? Why, why do these matter, and what do, they, what do they mean for us? I mean, obviously, this is important for Luke to record this and for the Holy Spirit to inspire him to do so in order for us to have an account and a record of this ancestry because it does matter. And then just to kind of throw out a couple of observations to consider as we look at this genealogy of Jesus, Luke is not the only one who who records a genealogy. Matthew is another one who actually begins he begins his gospel with a genealogy. So if you're going to start a gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, and this is what you begin with, well, there's some importance there. Um, there there's a reason for why Matthew also begins his gospel. But if you take a closer look at the two genealogies, and you can do that on your own time, uh, you'll notice something that, um, that doesn't seem to match up between the two. And, and that's important for us to kind of um, see. There's some names that are different between the two genealogies. There's some discrepancies, if you will, uh, when it comes to that. For example, in both genealogies, from Abraham to David, all the names are exactly the same. All of them are exactly the same. But when you move from David to, uh, to Jesus, they're all different. All the names are different between the two genealogies. And so, again, we know that Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit to record. Uh, we know that he has access to historical records, and so he can go to the courthouse of uh, Bethlehem and look at the genealogy of Jesus and, and record it and write it down. Matthew also has the same access to be able to go and see it and view it and write it down, and he's also inspired by um, the Holy Spirit to record for us. And so one of the questions then comes down to why are there discrepancies between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy? Why are they different? And for starters, it is correct to say that they are two different genealogies. They are one singular genealogy of Jesus, but from there they are two separate genealogies. Matthew specifically deals with the genealogy of Joseph, where Luke specifically is the genealogy of Mary, his mother. And so if you look at these, you're like, well, we just read through the 77 names and I didn't see Mary's name. If Luke belongs to Mary, how do we know that it is actually Mary's genealogy? Well, one of the things to mention is that the way that, again, this is the Jews, all right? I'm not saying that it's... Uh, quote-unquote, right or wrong, regardless, but the way that they recorded genealogies was through males, all right? Male only. That's why you don't see any females listed in this list from Luke. Now, Matthew does kind of go outside of that a little bit, and he includes five females throughout his genealogy, uh, but that's for another study at another time. Here, he does not include Mary. And the way that he gets around that by using Mary's lineage is by shifting the way he writes it, the Greek terms. And so if you actually go to the original language, every time it says son of, it's using the definite article tau, which is basically connecting the two. Son of Joseph, son of um, Eli, and as it goes on. Well, in this lineage, 
the son of Joseph, or Joseph being the son of Eli, is the only one when that definite article is not included to show direct bloodline. And so what he's doing there is including this parenthetical phrase as supposed or thought of, or according to everyone else, Joseph is in this, but only by marriage to Mary. So he's only included in this, and, and the reason why they use the term son of Eli is because there's no language in their original text for son-in-law, okay? So they're not going to say Joseph is the son-in-law of Eli, but rather they're just going to refer to him son of, as supposed through marriage, Eli, his father-in-law. And then from there, they continue on with Mary's lineage. So Mary is actually the daughter of Eli. Joseph is the son of Eli via Mary, his wife. And so that's when we then eventually get it all the way down to Nathan, son of David, which was the third son of David via Bathsheba. Joseph's side goes all the way to Solomon, who was the first son of David, but regardless, each lineage eventually gets to David. And then from David, they come back together and then end up going all the way up to Abraham and Adam and so forth. So those are just the two discrepancies or that we see of why there are two different genealogies. One is Joseph and one is for Mary. Now, one question that I want to dive into before we get to the reason for the both of them is why was it important for God to inspire Matthew and Luke to record genealogies. Why do we need these? Well, to the Jews, ancestry is everything. Ancestry is everything. Five quick points on the purpose for ancestral records. One, ancestry determined one's claim to land. All right, one's claim to land. So that was based on the original tribal allocation of the land in Palestine. And so when the children of Israel went into the land of Palestine, God divided up the land and it was allocated according to their tribes. And so if anyone were to ever come and claim land, the way that they're going to determine legally if it's your land to claim is whether or not you belong to that tribe that that land belongs to. Second, ancestry determined one's claim to an inheritance. And so should a person come along and claim that they had the right to a property or they had the right to servants or they had a right to an estate or they had a right to crops, um, they had a right to a material possession, the determination of that validity, that claim, would land on their ancestry. So they're going to say, what's your name? Who do you belong to? Who are you the son of? We're going to go check the records. Okay, now you can have the rightful claim to this inheritance. Three, ancestry determined the basis of taxation. That's why when uh, Joseph and Mary went to be taxed, they went to Bethlehem. We saw that with the census that was decreed at the beginning of Luke. Uh, the reason why they went to Bethlehem is because they're from the lineage of David, and Bethlehem is the town of David. So anybody from David's bloodline would eventually go to be counted under the census and then be taxed accordingly from that perspective. Four, ancestry determined the right to priesthood. And so you find that, for example, in the book of Esther. Anytime somebody made a claim to priesthood, um, it had to be proven that they were, in fact, in the priestly line. So nobody could just aspire to be a priest. It had to be via the bloodline, the ancestry of the priesthood. And then five, ancestry determined the claim to royalty, to kingship, and to ultimately a messiahship. 
And so any claim to royalty or kingship or Messiah would have to have been verified, would have to have been proven that this person claiming to be a king was actually in lineage directly from the great king, who was David himself. And we see that in 2 Samuel, that the great king, the ultimate king, that God's going to establish his throne forever, is going to come through the bloodline of David. And so as they're looking for a Messiah, they know that this Messiah has to come from a bloodline of David in order for him to establish his throne forever. So in the, as you kind of pull back a little bit, in the theocracy of Israel, which is a kingdom under the rule of God, led by God-ordained priests and kings, in the theocracy of Israel, genealogies became very, very critical. And that's why the Jews kept just incredible records when it comes to this. And the genealogy of Luke is indicative of that. He had access again to the records in, uh, where, where they kept them. Um, he had access to those to be able to go look at them, review them, and record from them what he needed to prove some things um, as he is beginning to write. Matthew did the same thing. And, and one thing that is made mention is that they so cared about ancestral line and the records that again throughout each of their exoduses throughout each of the uh, captivities the, I mean for, for example in 586 BC Judah and Jerusalem were completely destroyed and the people were then led back into uh, Babylonian captivity for over 70 years and during that time as they're even enslaved then like they kept records It's kind of like if your house is on fire and you're trying to go after the pictures or the wedding, um, you know, uh, uh, booklets that you still have or whatever it might be, you're going after those things that you're like, we need this, this is imperishable, we've got to have this forever. What they're going after are these ancestral records because they know they're looking for a Messiah that they need to prove belongs to a specific lineage. And it's interesting to mention that because after Jesus comes and shows up on the scene and he is proven to be in the lineage that checks off all the boxes for him to fulfill all righteousness, what happens in 70 AD is Israel again, they come in and they destroy Jerusalem and all of the records in 70 AD are completely destroyed, completely gone. I mean, they've managed to keep up with these for several thousand years. And then all of a sudden, now that Jesus has shown up and fulfilled, I just not find it coincidence. I just find it as truth. Like, the records are done. Jesus is here. He's all we need. And it's actually something to this day that Jews still, there's a deep sadness among them because of the fact that those records are gone. But the reality is, is God fulfilled everything he needed to in the historical records via the person of Jesus Christ. So that there would be a true people of God, whether you're Jew or Greek, as long as you fall under the headship of Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that here in a minute. But this was the reason for ancestral records. This is the reason for genealogies, because for them it categorized everything. It placed people where they belong and where they come from, who they are, what they get to do, what they get to inherit. All of those things land in this. And so why was it important for God to inspire Matthew and Luke to record both the genealogies of Joseph and Mary? Again, here we're covering all bases. When it comes to ancestry, legal and natural both matter. Okay, Legal and natural both matter. Anybody who ascended to the throne got the legal right to do so through the Father. Through the Father. 
All right? So if the father was a king, the son could become a king. If that son was a king, the grandson could become a king. But it had to come through a connection to their father. Now that connection did not have to be bloodline necessarily. You could adopt a son, and from a legal right, that son now has the ability to become king, become heir, become inheritance. In addition to that, you also have, on Mary's side, the natural bloodline. So when it comes to the Messiah, it is twofold, where it had to be legal, but it also had to be natural. It's got to have the blood of David running through his veins. And so when you look at Matthew, and you're only going based on Matthew, you're going to say, but wait a minute. When we get down to Jesus, or when we get down to Joseph, Joseph is not the blood biological father of Jesus. All right, we covered that in the, the miraculous virgin birth. And so he's not the blood father of Jesus. But by marrying Mary, he adopts Jesus legally so that anything that belongs to Jesus can be passed down to, or belongs to Joseph can be passed down to Jesus. So what is his becomes his. And so that is the legal side, and then the blood side, we get Mary. And so we do get the, the lineage of David as well running through. And so it's important to um, put both line, uh, genealogies out there in order for us to be able to say, Jesus is, as we'll see in a moment, son of David. He is son of David. So much so that nobody, nobody in the um, original uh, first century, when Jesus is proclaiming himself to be uh, the future king, and he's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, and he's proclaiming himself to be son of man and son of David and going through the terms, no one combats that. Not one person comes out and says he's not from the line of David. Why? Because that's probably the first place they went. The first place they would have gone to would be the historical records, the ancestry, to say, here's how we're going to disprove this man, that he cannot fill this office. But all they have to do is go, and they're like, all right, let's go Joseph. Let's go that route. Well, legally, Joseph adopted him, so it works. Let's go Mary. Well, Mary's Nathan, so Nathan's connected to David, so that, that works as well. So, bummer, we can't do that. He's covered all his bases. He's both legal and natural, right to be king. And so what does this genealogy reveal about Jesus? And there's four things that it reveals about Jesus that he fulfills, that, he, that, that, that identifies him as what we need, what we need. And just kind of working through, uh, not the whole list, but putting the list into categories, uh, we're going to start with the fact that it reveals that it goes all the way back to God. All the way back to God. Where in Matthew's genealogy, it only goes back to Abraham. Jesus to Abraham. Here, Luke takes it all the way back to God. Which allows us to be able to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He goes all the way there. Adam was the Son of God by creation. And when Adam was created, he fully bore the image of God. He was, in that re respect, a Son of God. Because he did not have an earthly father. He's created as a son. He bore the image of God, unmarred at that time, unspoiled, unpolluted, uncorrupted, until he fell into sin. And when Adam sinned, the original image of God was shattered. It was broken, and no one has ever entered into the world in the same way that Adam entered into the world, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. 
being begotten of God, being created of God without an earthly father, without an earthly father. And so Jesus comes to redeem the original Adam. Where Adam was the son of God who rebelled, Jesus is the son of God who obeys, who obeys. Where one ends up in disobedience, one ends up coming in obedience. This also allows us to see, and again, we, we, we talked about this last week, God confirms this. As Luke draws it all the way back to God, God himself, the Father, confirms this in Luke 3.22 when he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so more than the true Son of God humanly, he's also the true Son of God divinely. But he's not only the Son of God. We also see that he goes back to Adam. All right, he goes back to God, but then he goes back to Adam. And that allows us to give him that title, Son of Man. Son of God, also Son of Man, in the sense that he is like us. He is tempted like us, troubled like us, suffering like us, persecuted, hated, reviled, and ultimately killed. He is son of Adam, come all the way down to the pit, not like Adam. He didn't descend into disobedience. He actually descends from heaven to earth to the pit in obedience. And we'll see that here in a minute as we go to communion and discuss that a little further. But he's every bit of what Adam is. Fully man in every sense. Fully anchored in that as well. He will always be man. Fully in order to redeem man, in order to make us what we should have been in its perfection. He comes to undo what Adam did. What Adam did. And so he comes as the son of man. And then he also goes back to Abraham. Back to Abraham. Because he's the son of Abraham, and therefore the promised seed through whom all nations would be blessed, When God made a promise to Abraham, he made a promise to his seed, to his offspring. And as you know, in Galatians 3.16, it says it wasn't to offsprings, plural, but it was to an offspring, to an individual, that the promise was going to come that through this offspring, through this one seed, there would be a blessing for all nations. A blessing for all nations. And so Jesus, this is proving that he is of the ancestry and offspring of Abraham. And that he is not only an offspring of Abraham, but the offspring that Galatians is talking about and that the um, original writers, and um, as Moses is sharing with us in Genesis, that there will come an offspring as God kind of takes Abraham out and he says, look it up at the stars. There's going to be one offspring. Your, your offspring is going to number the stars, but one specifically is going to be a blessing for all. For all. And this Jesus is the one that comes from Abraham, son of Abraham. Then it also says that he is, goes back to David because he is the son of David and therefore he is Jesus, the promised king who has come to establish his kingdom and rule on his throne forever according to 2 Samuel 7. So the son of God has taken on the form of the son of man to be the eternal blessing to us through his sonship of Abraham and as the great king via his sonship of David. Jesus, as God, has become man to redeem man back to God. This is why ancestry matters. 
This is why the genealogy is put in place. It's to show us that Jesus fulfills all credentials. All credentials necessary for him to be king. For him to be Messiah. For him to be priest. For him to be um, the, the, the second Adam. For him to redo what we messed up. All along the page. And so it's revealing to us the love of God and that he's written the whole story and has always had on his mind from um, the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, and we looked at that a little bit last week as we read through Ephesians 1, that before the foundation of the world, God is weaving through history, through people, the lineage and legacy that Jesus is ultimately going to establish. That through us, through people, Jesus is born and Jesus then redeems us. So that the lineage that we broke, Jesus is able to come in and just like the first Adam who came and then left a legacy, Jesus gets to come and begin a new rebirthing of a new family, a new legacy. And when it comes with Jesus, it literally ushers in a new kingdom with a new community. And it's not to say that being Jewish um, no longer matters, but all it is saying is that God used this family lineage to show some prophecies and show some promises and to, and to show his faithfulness and to show his assurance and to show that when he says, I will do something, he actually shows up and does it. But when it comes to Jesus, that lineage no longer matters. It no longer matters in the sense that he is now creating a new family. That the only thing that allows you into the family is faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So we don't have to sit back and say, well, what tribe do we belong to? Who is our father? Who is our so-and-so? What inheritance are we receiving? Are we getting that? We don't have to worry. We don't have to go to the records to determine those things. But rather, we get to go to Jesus Christ alone and say, I have nothing in my history that would allow me the right to receive forgiveness from you. I have nothing in my merit or in my work or in my uh, estate that allows me to receive forgiveness from you. So how do I receive forgiveness from you? And he says, I've already done everything that you need to do. I've already done it all. You just believe in me and you trust me. You believe that I am the fulfilled son of God, that I am the fulfilled son of man, that I am the fulfilled son of Abraham, that I am the fulfilled son of David. And so we don't have to worry about those things anymore. I fulfilled it all. I fulfilled all righteousness. And so all you have to do is trust in me. And by trusting in me, you get adopted. And because we get adopted by the Father, it now gives us the legal right to receive the inheritance from God. And because of the bloodshed of Jesus that gets sprinkled over our lives, we also get the bloodline inheritance from the Father as well. We get brought into the family both ways, legal and blood, because of everything Jesus accomplished for us. We don't do anything. We don't do anything. He does it all for us. We are all sinners from our father Adam. All of us 
except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. They tried tripping Jesus up in this by saying, isn't He not the carpenter's son? Which what they're saying by that is, does not the seed of sin pass down to Jesus? But again, that's why we believe in the virgin birth. Because sin only passed down through the seed of the males. And everyone here has an earthly biological father. You're a sinner because of your father. Both male and female. Alright? And that goes all the way back to Adam. That's why it says uh, in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It also goes down in Romans 5.18 and 19 and says, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, thank you, Adam, for, for what you did. And we can get in, you're like, well, Eve ate the apple, what are we talking about? Alright, there's responsibility that was not taken. And he sinned for it. And his sin fractures everything and passes down to us so that as we're born, we have no other choice but to sin because we are born sinners. So by his disobedience, we all are condemned. I mean, we're born damned. But through Jesus in the miraculous birth and what he fulfills through his lineage comes to ultimately die the death we deserved and through his obedience we are then made righteous we are made righteous it says that in romans 5 8 through 11 but god shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners christ died for us since therefore we now have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of god for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also have rejoiced in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Here's what I want to do. I actually want to pause here in a moment. And I want us to actually partake of communion before I finish. I want us to partake of communion because this is, again, this is what enters us into the family. And as we then enter into the family, I'm going to close with a passage and then we'll continue on in worship. I'll close with a passage that allows us to then start thinking about what we now receive in the inheritance. Having the adoptive father who gives us the legal right to receive this and the blood of Jesus that brings us into the family through his shedding. And so I want you to go ahead and stand. And if you don't have the elements, I want you to go back to the table and grab them and then come back to your seats. And if someone will also grab one and just throw it at me, that'd be awesome. Well, here it comes. Thank you. 
Double the fun. I need it that bad, don't I? As we discuss every week, communion is the representation of all of this history culminating at the cross. History hinges in this moment of what Jesus Christ does in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's where he fulfills all righteousness. Because it's when he finally brings all unrighteousness to a head and he kills it. He kills it at the cross by breaking his body and shedding his blood. And this is God's act of love towards us. In that while we are those sinners from Adam, Christ died for us. He died for us. And he justifies us by his blood. That wrath of God that's being poured out that he's talking about, that wrath of God that's towards us, the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood absorbs that wrath so that it is no longer directed at us. And we can therefore say in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's take the bread. And let's remember his body being broken for us. And as we talk about bloodlines, let's remember that just that blood being shed isn't just for the forgiveness of sins and removal of sins, but it is also what completely covers us in allowing us to be in the bloodline of Christ, to be redeemed and to be brought into the family. So that when God looks at us, he says, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. It unites us to Jesus. It allows us to abide in Christ for who he is. So let's thank him as we remember his blood being shed for us. And as the scriptures testify, you can see it, you can be seated. As the scriptures testify, the Father is establishing a new kingdom. And he does not rule this kingdom as a king with a bunch of peasants that he is not in relationship with, that he does not know, that he does not care for. It says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Where we were broken in fellowship with the Lord, we were broken in relationship with the Lord, we have now been reconciled in relationship. And it's not just a, I now know who the Father is, I now know who Jesus is, I now know who the Spirit of God is. 
It's not that I just now know God and I'm saying that I believe Him and that I trust Him and that, I, that I'm aware of Him and that I want to be under His um, kind of team. But I'm adopted. I'm now in the family. As Romans 8, 14 and 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. As we're looking through that list of son of, son of, son of, son of, we get grafted in to this lineage to where we can now say son of, daughter of. For the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs. Heirs of God and, get this, fellow heirs with Christ. What I love about that is God is so generous in what He provides that He counts us equal in what He provides an inheritance to His Son, Jesus. What Jesus gets, we get. I mean, that's the level of love that God has for us when He adopts us as His children. Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And this is a hard one. I wish it just ended there. But it doesn't. Comma. Provided. We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I think that's the part of our kind of modern uh, contemporary Christianity that we, we just don't leave off, especially when we're um, doing an evangelistic message. Get saved, your life will be amazing. Get saved, everything, goes, everything gets better. No, when you get saved, your sins are forgiven and you're adopted into the family of God. Yes and amen. But things are probably going to get difficult. There's going to be suffering that comes. Because if they're willing to, if they're willing to persecute Jesus, the perfect man who's ever lived, how much more are they going to persecute us as well? Being a part of the family allows us to not only experience what that means right now, that we now have a father. And we also get to look ahead. I don't know, being in, in southern, uh, being from the south and growing up in Tennessee, you know, you got all the quartets that go around doing the southern gospel music and that's all they want to sing about is heaven i mean it's like 80 90 percent of the songs are about the streets of gold and and they're longing for something that is an inheritance and it's going to be great and it's going to be awesome like i said i mean y'all know i always joke i can't wait to get up there and and teleport because i just think you'll be able to teleport in heaven all right but if i don't get to it's not a big deal the reason being is because I have a father now. A heavenly father for eternity who loves me unconditionally. Unconditionally. 
And it's not just something that I get when I get there, but it's something that I have now. I have now. So that as we live this life and we go through the sufferings that we experience, Jesus is able to say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are never alone. I'm with you always. Jesus is able to say that because of his relationship with the Father, the union that they have, and this is Trinitarian, but the union that they have as well with the Holy Spirit that he sends as a helper to us that is always with us everywhere we go. It allows God to be everywhere at all times in his fullness so that whatever it is that we are now walking and experiencing For those in this room who have had a healthy understanding of what parenthood looks like, whether you have parents who who loved you well and and cared for you and protected you and kept you out of the the streets so that cars didn't hit you or whatnot, like you have some leveling degree of what family health looks like. And for those who have children now at the same time, you're you're aware kind of of this mentality of like whenever they take off running in a parking lot or, um, you know, they're running around the house with scissors or knives and you're like, I, I'm trying to protect your life and preserve it. I care for you. I love you. When it comes to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their love for us, it's greater than anything we can ever possibly imagine this side of glory. It's it's taking every positive experience that you've ever felt from a familial perspective and it's kind of squashing it and saying, "That's, that's podunk. That's nothing compared to the love that we are going to give you. And that's the only thing that allows us to persevere to the end. It's the only thing that allows us to keep on with repentance. It's the only thing that allows us to be fueled for discipleship and fueled for evangelism and fueled uh, for Christian um, relationships and living. It's the only thing that allows us to be able to say to sin, I don't want you anymore because what I'm experiencing with my Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit is so much greater than anything this world would have to offer me. This family that I now belong to matters so much to me because of what has changed in me that nothing the world offers me is shiny anymore. I don't want it. But rather, I just want what Jesus has for me. And therefore, I endure through the hardship and the calamities that come. Because I have a Father who loves me and will care for me. He loves me and will care for me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that before the foundation of the world, you had a family in mind of people from all tongues and tribes and nations, backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, ethnicities, that you were going to adopt 
via the work of your son Jesus in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this family, this community, you lavish your love on us. And I just pray that today we see that and we begin to walk in it. We believe it's true. And we, we reap the benefit of being sons and daughters of you. Thank you, God, for all that you do in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice at the cross. Thank you, Spirit, for the daily direction and guidance and conviction that you give us to continue pointing us back to Abba, Father. May we continue to worship out of the overflow of the love that you lavish on us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at